tonight on the show, we talk about haunted hotels, discovering Giallo, and Aaron's childhood crush on Sam Raimi. That's right, it's the horror movies that made us. Happy Halloween! This is Manic Movie Monday. My partner in crime. Hi, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited about this. This is this is like going to be an exercise in getting to know each other's horror film history. And I always find that really fascinating because everyone has different things that they grew up with. You're t- are you 10 years older than me? I don't know. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. Insert number. I don't know. I don't know. Don't so, so I don't think I'm. Am I that much older than you? I'm 42. Think, well, yeah, I'm 50. So okay, so yeah, but at least whenever there's that much of an age difference, there's different experiences with horror films. Whether you got to see them in the theater, a cool cousin who gave you a VHS, or or whatever, it's uh, different for each person. You know. Mm-hmm. So this episode is going to be dedicated to our history with horror, the horror movies that popped our cherries, so to speak. Uh, these are these are horror films that, in keeping with the Halloween spirit, that were influential in some way, that were formative for us. So. Yeah, not just the horror movies that we like, right? the ones that had an effect on us or still have an effect on us, and it's not just a sort of dessert for us at this point. It's something that we will revisit and watch multiple times because mm-hmm. it never gets old. It's not just a uh, something we put on in the background. No, no. These, these, the ones I chose and which are in no particular order, I'm not ranking them or anything. Mine are ranked. Are yours ranked? That's cool. They are. That's okay. <laughs> that's cool. You know, if I had to do this again next year, that maybe that list would change. I don't think the movies would change, but maybe the order would change. But my top two are always going to be my top two. Uh, and 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 that order number two and number one are never going to change probably. Wow. But anyway, uh, I think we are f- somewhat familiar with each other's horror movie appreciations. We've certainly touched on them and talked about them in some aspect throughout all of our our podcasts so far. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear what yours are, and uh, I have some thoughts to share about mine that maybe I haven't articulated already. So let's do it. Okay. Okay. Do you want to go first? Like, do you want to do like you do one, I do one, you do one, I do one. Okay. I'll go first. So my number five, this was the struggle. I kind of knew what my top four were going to be. The finding the fifth one, I really had to think about it a lot. Uh, Cause there's a lot of movies that I have a a great appreciation for. Maybe I don't consider them horror films. Mm. For instance, uh, Jaws is something that I can watch forever. It's a movie that is timeless. It's brilliantly acted. The tension, the, the way it's filmed, there's, it's an incredible feeling watching that movie. And it's propped up on everyone's incredible acting performance. So Jaws is one that I debated whether or not that was my number five. That's Another funny. one. That was is, also, yeah, that was going, it, it was going to be on the list. And then I was like, well. It's not on your list. Is it technically horror? That's where I got kind of like, well, I mean, if you wanted to talk about my history with, you know, my obsession with sharks and my obsession with Roy Scheider, yes, obviously Jaws would be on the list. But as far as horror goes, I I don't put it in that category. So see, hmm. and I think horror is something that's that can be defined differently for everybody. It's like, do you think of horror as something that changes a social norm, like people? stopped going into the ocean because of just i it's a thought that i always have whenever i enter a large body of water there's movies on my list that i think touch on that sort of aspect where a social norm was impacted by the terror inflicted by this film 
Wow. Right? Yeah. So Jaws is definitely in that category. Okay. Um, there's another movie for me, which I think is also another, it's, it's his first Steven, it's the first Steven Spielberg movie, and that's Duel. Duel um, about the truck. Right. The truck and the, and and the guy absolutely not understanding why this person is terrorizing them, not knowing who this person is, and the fear that that palpable fear. But is that a horror movie? It, it definitely is terror, but is it horror? I don't know. That's interesting. It's it's almost it's like horror, just ghosts and and right. uh, Slasher. monsters, right. slashers. I don't right. know. Like Jaws is on nearly every top 50 horror movie list. Right. Right. Absolutely. It is. So I think it's, it's something that is each person's own definition. And I think that is important to say for both of our lists. Our lists are not, I'm not saying this is a definitive horror list. You're not oh, either. Oh, God, no. No, this is um, not like AFI's horror, you know, yeah, so, collection. I mean, no, not at all. Some of these. No, Blair some, Witch or no, Paranormal no. Activity. That, those are probably on people's list because that was a new genre, a new horror genre that that fear, that terror, because it's it was visceral, it was real, like for it was real. Right, the found footage stuff. Yeah. Gotcha. So anyway, all right. So my number five, what I what I landed on was Hereditary. Oh. Uh, for me, Hereditary is such a oh boy. I don't even know. Like, it's an Ari Aster film. It's the most recent film that's on my list. I think it was 2018. This movie, if you ask anybody who hasn't seen the movie but is familiar with it, they probably have a perception of what is the horror in that movie. And it's almost a red herring. Mm. It's not what you think it is. Right. The performances, Tony Collette's especially, is so incredible. It is off the rails. It feels so real. It feels like somebody in crisis. It very much, if you've ever experienced a tragic sudden loss, she captures that. I don't know what she tapped into for that performance, but she captures that feeling of absolute horror and terror and confusion. It's visceral. And it's the performances in this movie. Everyone's incredible, not just Tony Collette. Her role as the mother of this family takes her into an exceedingly painful point as a character. Hereditary is absolutely rewatchable. The more you rewatch it, you will pick up on certain aspects that lean more to the horror side of Hereditary because they're hidden throughout the movie, just like Midsummer, Midsummer has hidden aspects throughout it. So it's definitely rewatchable to try to key in on those moments and they're truly terrifying and the traditional horror kind of sense. Mm. And I will also uh, shout out to a short that Ari Aster did called There's Something Strange About the Johnsons. That is absolutely worth finding if you can find it. It's about 20 some minutes long and it's a you can see where the tinkerings of his brain sort of meander uh so i definitely recommend that all right put that on my put that on my list yeah i will start with my most current i would say horror film okay as you did so this is a movie that i was kind of convinced that i had seen everything and that nothing was going to scare me ever again i love those and and that there what there just wasn't anything left it was sort of okay i've seen all the found footage i've seen all the slasher i've seen all the creepy shot on video stuff right and i was watching a special called i, I want to say it was called 50 horror films you've never seen or 50 horror films you've never heard of that should or whatever and they talked about this movie and I thought it was very interesting because it was an all-male cast. And I just thought, well, that's interesting. There's no women anywhere, except kind of like on an ancillary basis. There's no, there really are no main female characters at all in this movie. It's based on a bunch of, you know, it's, it's men. It's men going into an abandoned sanitarium over a holiday weekend so that they can clean up the asbestos. There are asbestos um, oh, cleaners. Oh, I know movie. And I thought, well, who? why would I watch this for whatever reason? But then as people started talking about it in the special, it seemed like something very interesting. And, and I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'll just watch it. I rented it. And, and that movie was session nine from 2001. And I rented it. And the first time I rented it, 
I just was floored. It was such a simple film and it is a slow burn in every sense of the word. It does not get going on a violent tear until the last 15 minutes of the movie. The rest of the film is strictly psychological. And that's what I love about it was that it really messes with your head in a lot of ways. And the performances are amazing. It's like, say what you will about David Caruso and his one note and his sunglasses, but he actually knocks it out of the park in this one. I will agree with you on that. Um, (laughs) I, I was hesitant about this movie and David Caruso was my hurdle. Uh huh. And uh, when I finally did it, I was I was surprised, and I immediately watched another David Caruso movie, and I was like, oh, okay. This, this, <laughs> this was obviously a really good direction or something. Yeah. Um, you can and tell. I don't dislike David Caruso. It's just uh, he is very often one one dimensional. I was going to say for our David Caruso fans out there, we do apologize yeah. for anyone we've offended. Um, no, so. One of the things that I really love about it was Peter Mullen, who plays Gordon, is this Scottish actor, and he gives such an amazing performance, and it's so pained, and it's so Mm. relatable. So I don't have kids. I don't want kids, (laughs) but I got a puppy, and when I got a puppy, I understood the true meaning of sleep deprivation because in the movie he is a sleep deprived new father who is is trying to make this he's trying to make this mission happen for them to clean up this sanitarium so that he will get money because he's he's the only breadwinner in the family he has this new kid the new kid that's been born has an ear infection that's been going on for a very long time he's not getting enough sleep and when you haven't had enough sleep there is a level of psychosis that occurs that only a person who has been sleep deprived for days and days on end understands Mm -hmm. and being someone who suffers with mental illness I didn't really think about what was going to happen when I got a puppy I really truly thought oh I got this it's fine I can get five hours of sleep and be okay without really understanding that it's not just five hours of sleep. It's like you're getting up every two hours to take care of this thing, you know, this animal. And so I got to a point where I wanted to be hospitalized because I was so broken and so tired and felt alone and felt like I didn't, like, I just didn't have anyone to help me. And I would just cry and cry and cry. So when I watched this movie, I completely related to this character because there's this person that has to work. They have to work because they have to make the money to, to, you know, to take care of their family. And they're going crazier and crazier and crazier. And I got it. I did. I got it. Now, what's great about this movie is that this is two movies. If you watch it for the first time, it's one movie. You watch it the second time, it's a totally different movie. In fact, when you watch it the second time and you know the, I wouldn't call it the twist, but you know the ending, when you watch it a second time, it's even more disturbing because you know exactly what's happening when it happens. Mm. And it makes it a movie that's enjoyed on multiple levels and yeah just can't cannot say enough about session nine that's one of my favorite 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 horror films and is my favorite horror film of the past 20 something years wow okay all right so my number four i debated whether or not this should be higher on my list but (laughs) it's my number four and it's halloween the 1978 john carpenter movie there is just a place in my heart for this movie it's that movie that i can quote every line i love all the characters. My favorite is Nancy Keys. Is that her name? Annie. Annie. <laughs> and then there's PJ Souls, who is totally awesome. <laughs> totally. And, totally. <laughs> and of course, Jamie Lee Curtis. It's funny, this movie sort of has a connection with my number three movie. Yeah, the performances are good. Uh, you know, for a slasher film, everyone acting is is good. The lines are, especially the lines between the sheriff and the doctor, they, they're a little 
you know, eh. there's a lot of there's there's a lot of scenery chewing in Halloween. Yes. And that's another thing, too. It's filmed, I think, in the spring. It's in California. Right. And they pull it off like the 25 leaves that fall from a bag of somebody <laughs> up on a crane. Totally convinced me it's fall somewhere. It's fall, right. Mm-hmm. I, I love Halloween and I don't care why michael myers is an unstoppable force of nature or evil i don't care why he wants to kill jamie lee Curtis. i don't care about any of that it's it's the tension it's the soundtrack is about half of my love for it john carpenter created a, a most simple but amazing soundtrack that is so memorable you have michael myers the first half of the film is michael myers just randomly showing up in places you know, fo- with their camera focused on him, and sometimes it, he's in the background. And 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 until you've watched this movie maybe a few times, you don't realize that he's in the background in his car or line of sight. So I love that about Halloween. It was just so cleverly done. It's it's a simple film. It's not gory for a slasher film. You have all of the usual tropes for a slasher film: do drugs, you get killed; have sex, you get killed. Unlike Friday the Thirteenth, you have a, a killer that's motivated by something that's somewhat vague you don't know why you know that he's a a little boy at the beginning of the movie but you don't know how he grows up to be this monster that can't be killed and that's never explained and that's fine i just i there's something about halloween and i it's it is my halloween film it's part of my ritual for halloween is i have to watch this movie and i know every line i'm not scared by it anymore but it's just a feeling that it evokes the soundtrack and the interaction between the three girls, the three teenage girls is, I just love it. I'll give you that. I, I definitely can see Halloween being on pretty much everyone's list. I think Sure. Um, just growing up watching it and, you know, fun fact, when I was a kid, I saw Halloween two before I saw Halloween one. Okay. So I, because USA network only had the rights to Halloween two, they didn't have mm. Halloween one at the time. So they'd show Halloween two all the time. So I knew every single line from Halloween two and had no idea how to watch the original because if it wasn't on cable and cut up, I wasn't allowed to watch it. So Halloween two was the one that I got introduced to Michael Myers through that. And he's my least favorite of all of the horror franchises, but I absolutely appreciate John Carpenter. And I absolutely appreciate the original of that film just because it's like a piece of art and history it has acting you know but it's not i mean i i absolutely adore donald pleasance and will watch him in anything sure. i actually watched the james bond movie that he's in just so i could see him you know awesome yeah i i dig him but yeah there's a certain amount of um I would say theater actor scenery chewing that goes on with that movie where Donald Ple- they're my favorite scene my mom laughs every time we watch it is where Donald Pleasance and the doctor from um, Smith's Grove are walking and talking at the scene. Oh, that's one of my favorite lines too. And they're Somebody talking. Somebody taught him how to drive. And he's like, and he's like, well, you know, I've got to do this. You, you know, and they're back and forth on each other. And I'm like, okay, you know, get him some salt because just a lot of chewing. You're doing it, you know. But that being said, I still, I still adore it. So that's a, that's a good, that's a, that was a good one. All right. What's your next one? Well, so my next one is the very, very first horror film I ever saw ever in my entire life. I was six years old and my parents were watching this horror film in the, um, in the living room and I could see through the banister. So I knew what it was. Also at the time, I used to watch promos on Cinemax when they would show the different, you know, they were like, and Friday night, we're going to show this. And they had all these different promos for different, for different films. And what I remembered was that there was someone hiding in the closet. And it was always like this person would go in and like after taking a shower and reach in to get whatever it was they were going to get. And this person would come out of the closet with a big old knife and kill them. And I asked my mom the next day, cause I was fascinated. And I said, what is that movie that you and daddy were watching last night? You know? And she's like, Oh, it was called the Doorman. It was terrible. Years, years go by. I'm trying to find a movie called the Doorman for years. I was like, well, you know, maybe it doesn't exist or she's wrong because she is frequently wrong. <laughs> So I thought, 
well, maybe, maybe I hallucinated it. I don't know. I was a kid, you know? So fast forward, I'm in my twenties laying on my couch one night. I remember three things about this horror film. Number one, the whole closet thing. Number two, there was a scene where a woman was wearing a pink robe and she had a parrot that was in her apartment. I remember those two things and that it was in a high rise building somewhere. I am laying on my couch one night in my twenties. And all of a sudden this thing pops up and I went, oh my God, that's the movie. That's totally in the movie. However, this time the movie is called Too Scared to Scream. And that is a 1985 stock and slash shot in 82, did not get released until 85 because the production company went under. It's fairly forgettable, hard to find. It's definitely not on any streaming services right now, but it was the first film I remember making me go ooh not scared but ooh like I like that whatever that is I like that feeling that jolt yeah whatever it was I was like oh I love it too scared to scream never Um, heard of it never seen it starring Ian McShane from Deadwood Deadwood yeah Ann Archer of Fatal Attraction fame it was just a you know like dude hiding in a closet kind of thing and and can I guess it not that we're doing spoilers for this but was the doorman the killer (laughs) apparently from what I remember and it's not much But from what I remember, there were all of these red herrings and it turned out it was indeed a doorman, but it was not the doorman that you think. So in other words, the doorman that they're trying to lean towards is the Ian McShane character. You know, he's, he's, he lives with his mother. He's, you know, a little theatrical, you know, Uh, they they give them all these reasons for being the killer. And it turns out it's just, it's another doorman that happens to be in the same building. No, so no real spoilers there. It's yes, it is indeed a doorman, but I have yet to own it or anything like that. Like you said, it's incredibly hard to find. So, okay. I wonder if your mom just for horror movies, like that, that's her, like whatever the villain is, that's like what she remembers the movie as. Like so the, the doorman. Jo- <laughs> Jaws would be the shark or I, I don't know. Well, I looked it up and yeah, she's right. So oh. the original title of the film, it was shot as the doorman. And I believe when it aired on Cinemax, back in 85 or 86 had its original title, which is how she would have known it. I, I guarantee you, she would not have known too scared to scream. <laughs> so, yeah. And up. what year was that? 1980s? You it said? is 85. So if it was, if it was, if it came out in 85, I can tell you I was six years old. So it was like 85, 86 sometime around there. Interesting. Okay. So we're ready for my number three. We are. Yes. So my number three is the oldest movie on my list. Oh, it's psycho. Hitchcock. Wow. How old were you when you first saw it? I was probably in my teens and I didn't know anything about Hitchcock. Uh, This was the first Hitchcock movie I ever saw. And I don't know what it was that actually made me sit down and watch it. I, I don't know if it was the house. I'm not sure. There was something, whatever it was, that caught my attention and I actually sat down and watched it and it it was transformative for me it was how intelligent horror could be done and also realizing that the weight of a movie the the, the impact of a film the the social impact of a film can absolutely have an effect on the actors however incredible they are in this movie like it can have a lasting effect on them that will not ruin their careers but hang over them in a way that limits their possibilities which is certainly the case for the star of this movie anthony perkins who was a renowned actor prior to this and was chosen for his skills by hitchcock but never crawled out from under the shadow of mother because of it and had to revisit psycho in his later life several times several times and sequels that were well done i I, you know they weren't terrible they don't certainly capture you can't recapture something that's as as fundamental as the original but they did it in a clever way you don't know if anthony perkins is still the same person that he was in the first film as he is in the sequels Mm. um because there's outside influences that are happening that aren't genuinely concerned with his mental health anyway the original Psycho, it's cleverly shot. The first, I don't know, 30 minutes of the movie maybe is 
character development and you're developing a flawed character mm. which was unique and the punishments that are doled out are done so in a very surprising way that was never done before and in a way that almost makes the killer redemptive he is a broken person who finds himself encircled with broken flawed people and you have it's kind of weird it's in a in a, in a weird way like this is an introduction to and I, I hate to do spoilers but it's kind of an introduction to mental illness mm. for me in my life like this movie is about that and well it's not about that but it's an aspect of the film and it is forgiving of it in a way so it, it's just it, to me the performances in psycho and the way it's shot the clever way it's told and the storytelling the mystery and the, the investigation and how people were pulled into this tiny hotel's orbit or motel's orbit is so well done it's believable yeah hitchcock just has an incredible way of telling a story and filming a story that is very unique to him like even in the shot for shot remake by Gus Van Zandt, like there's an aspect that's missing. Like you can't recapture, I don't think, Anthony Perkins' performance. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I love Vince Vaughn. Don't I do too. I, I do watch too. Vince Vaughn in pretty much anything. But is he convincing as a Norman Bates? No. He's not. He's not. <laughs> and Hesh, yeah, she was good. She was a convincing uh, Janet Lee, but yeah, it, there's just something about it. There's something lovable about Norman Bates. There's something very innocent about Norman Bates, and you kind of want to protect him. Yes, and that is different from the remake because yes, he's looking in in the original. You know, he's he is watching her take a shower, yeah. um, but he's not doing anything. Okay, at least right. that we know of. And in the remake, yes, Vince Vaughn is straight out jerking off. So yeah, it it ruins it for me, in my opinion. It does. And it's weird too, because with Psycho, you know that there's something wrong with Norman Bates from the get-go. He's being controlled by his mother. He's being berated by her constantly. And you have an empathy for him. He's lonely. He's trapped in this motel off the highway that no one visits. He's alone with her and she's abusive. But then he watches this woman shower and you're like, oh, well, fuck you. But then like he's in, he's just, the innocence is captured and he's curious because he's never been exposed to life. I think that's, a really beautiful way of looking at that movie and i've never heard that perspective before yeah, and i really I love, love that i love psycho me too i love that all right so i will take a page out of your book and go with my oldest okay this particular horror film i may have heard about it in passing and kind of brushed it off like oh that doesn't sound like something i would watch I was watching Bravo's 100 Scariest Moments in Horror Bravo. Um, when I was, I assume I was probably 24, 25. And my ex-husband and I lived at his parents' house and we basically just would hole up in his room and watch movies and all kinds of stuff. So we were watching this and during the countdown, they interviewed the director and I was like, oh, I know him from other movies. Okay, cool. And there were a lot of people who talked about this movie. And I said, well, I've, I've got to see this. So there was a video store that kept, that still kept operating and it was called Unique Video in Tampa. And me and my ex-husband, Eric, went down there and we bought the, we got the VHS copy of it and rented it and brought it home and watched it. And as soon as the first obscene phone call played, I was hooked. And I mean, I was hooked in a way where I was hiding under a blanket. Oh, wow. And afterwards, I remember telling Eric, I'm like, you need to go check the, <laughs> go check the closets, go check the closets, go check the attic. And he's like, we don't have an attic. I'm like, I don't care. Go check everything. <laughs> and I loved it. And I loved it so much that I went out that Christmas and I think they released it on DVD, went out that Christmas, bought copies for every single one of my friends. And, and it was like, you need to see this movie. Like you absolutely need to see this movie. You don't understand. This is the, this is the precursor to Halloween. This is the killer POV. Like all this stuff hadn't been done before. And that movie is 1974's black Christmas. See, I thought that would be your top movie. 
No, well, like I said, these aren't ranked. So yours um, aren't ranked. Yeah. If, however, if it was ranked, it would absolutely be my top movie because it is one of those films where I have seen it in every iteration possible. I have, you know, VHS it. I DVD. Now I have the Blu-ray. There's actually a book called It's Me, Billy, which is this like chronicle of the entire film that I'm going to be getting because it's on my Amazon wish list. And uh, directed by Bob Clark, who obviously we touched on in the Porky's episode. And what I love about this movie is that there is no, besides the very small attempt it's made to, to kind of lean you towards Kier Dulay being the killer, i.e. the boyfriend being the killer, there really is no demystifying of the killer. There is no, there's no origin story. And that's why I love it because there's something very frightening and scary and disconcerting about a person who just climbs into a house, decides to mentally torture a bunch of women with obscene phone calls and then kills people one by one especially around Christmas break in in Canada there's just something so cool about the fact that number one we never really know his identity and number two he doesn't get caught and that to me is the scariest because yeah in the film, he always makes a phone call after he kills someone. And so at the end of the movie, we have these like Keystone cops who have showed up to the house and they haven't checked anything yet. So a lot of these bodies are up in the attic and they're like, should we check the attic, Sarge? And they're like, nah, forensics will be here in the morning. You know. So they leave the house and they leave Olivia Hussey laying there in bed by herself and they leave and all you see is the credits roll and then the phone rings and you know that Olivia Hussey has become his last victim. And it's just fabulous. It's brilliant. brilliant. You know, it is. It's just, um, it's brilliant. The house itself becomes a character in the movie. You know, it's just beautiful and... And yes, I have seen all of the remakes. That, that's another episode. <laughs> that's another episode. I mean, we could devote a whole episode to that because I don't even know all of the iterations oh. of this movie because there's, I don't know how many Black Christmases. There's other ones that are oh. like Black Christmas that aren't Black Christmas. Mm-mm. There's just so many. Mm-hmm. And none of them capture what this film does. Not even no. close. And no. <laughs> And again, it's like you've talked about it before. It's lightning in a bottle. Once it's out, you can't remake it with the same kind of like charisma or terror or whatever, or or just nuances that the original Mm -hmm. had. You have to do something different. So don't even remake it. No. And the attempt to give the killer a backstory. Yeah. While I applaud the effort. Sure. In the fact that someone could do that, it's like, oh, that's an interesting and also kind of creepy way of, of looking at this character. It's not the same. If you listen to the phone calls from the original, you can kind of piece together what happened to him as a child. Like from what just from listening to it, especially with like the with the subtitles on is that he was babysitting his baby sister. Something happened because when he plays all of the voices, the quote is, I know what you did, filthy Billy, dirty Billy. And then he killed her right before he kills her. He says, Agnes, don't tell him what we did. That to me leads me to believe that he molested his sister. And then he killed her to keep her quiet. And then his parents came home and they beat him. And then that is the thing that started him down crazy town. And this is the house where he grew up in and he's come back and now he's just going to wreak havoc on in in the holidays you know i mean if you listen to the phone calls that's pretty much the backstory now granted i haven't read the book yet so the book may give me a completely different insight into it and will wreck my whole theory so (laughs) i hope not hopefully just adds to it my introduction to black christmas was me searching for a film that i only vaguely barely remember from my childhood and i think the movie was probably one of stranger calls yeah but i don't know it's the movie where the killer is in the house Mm -hmm. and i don't know i think that's one of stranger calls but i don't know i've never gone beyond that yeah black christmas is a great one it's it's margot kidder is in it i didn't know it was canadian until i met you yeah it's it's a great it's a great 
horror film, especially it's a nice thing to put on. If your favorite thing is horror, you can put it on at Christmas. Oh, it yeah. has some really beautiful jump scares that no matter how many times I see it, they're still there. Every woman with long brown hair can, or long hair in general, can relate to someone reaching over and pulling their hair like that. That is, that is fear. <laughs> You know? <laughs> Great. All right. So what are we down to your number two? My number two. And again, I, I think it'll always be my number two. It'll never be my number one. And that's Stanley Kubrick's The Shining a oh. movie I saw very young. Um, I was probably single digits old. <laughs> yeah, it's a movie that until I saw Hereditary, I did not think that acting in a horror movie could reach that kind of level. Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall are at fucking 11s in this movie, and it's believable. Jack Nicholson already gives the air of insanity coming off One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but his performance in this is so incredible. Stanley Kubrick's vision is always mysterious, and there's certainly been hours and hours of YouTubers trying to delve into the mysteries of this movie, if there are even mysteries to be solved. Stanley Kubrick definitely was one for hidden messages, you know, so I've been, so I've learned they're throughout all of his movies. Uh, everything from faking the moon landing is, is for, is in this movie to something about Indian burial grounds and Calumet baking powder. So, you know, give it what you will. This movie has so many layers and all of that is beneath the surface of this incredible performances and a person like devolving into insanity before the camera. Not a person, not a likable person. I would akin him to a stepfather type character who has little patience for a little young human but is trying to support his family and this is one way he support he's a writer and this is one way he supports his family is not through his writing but through the odd jobs that he has to take either as a teacher or as a caretaker for a hotel over the winter and he is a fragile person who is absolutely ripe for the picking for this hotel that is steeped in decades of horror and ghosts and terror and it's there's really no describing the level of performance in this movie it's it's so off the rails it feels unscripted but everything is so meticulous the hotel is confusing the 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 acts the acts that are happening and unfolding in front of you are confusing and nothing really is explained nothing is there's no exposition really other than what you learn about the history of the hotel from the current manager about events that have unfolded in the past the the exposition is really left as things unfold and it really comes without much definition you really don't know at the end of this movie was it all ghosts or was it all in his mind and i think that's brilliant and i i i love this movie the, the snow the palpable terror of shelly duvall is so and and precipitated by the fact that she was tortured by kubrick, kubrick. um <laughs> to get that performance from her and not excusing his actions but there's no movie that i think even comes close to the shining and the level of just destroying mental faculties to get a performance out of his actors hmm. Yep. I, I can't think of another movie that comes close to that. Maybe like Full Metal Jacket or something like that or another Kubrick film. He couldn't have been easy to work for. Not not as an actor, I think you're making a brave choice to do a Kubrick film, but you're going to be in a movie that is forever memorable, whatever that movie is. And much like Psycho, this was the undoing for Shelley Duvall. Like, I mean, this yeah. broke her, unfortunately. And she was a brilliant actor. Yeah, thank thank God for Fairytale Theater. That was like later on when she when she got to make her comeback. It was yeah. it was the Fairytale Theater stuff. And she was so she was great in that. And it seemed like it was right up her alley. And yeah. I was introduced to the shining like pretty much everybody else, which is usually through like a horror countdown or or having read the book or one of the interesting things was I had seen this interview with Stephen King where he talked about how as a father and as a father who was an alcoholic and as an, an, an addict at the time, there are moments where you just want to beat the shit out of your children and you can't. And him writing 
The Shining was his way of being able to get that aggression out. And I very much relate as someone who's a recovering alcoholic, I very much relate to The Shining. And I very much relate to the idea of you've been the caretaker all along. And the idea that this person has kind of tried to stay on the straight and narrow, but just keeps falling in all of these ways, whether he's abusing his child or losing his job or any of those things. It's like, he just cannot get it to work and he's trying to write, but he can't. And that I relate to. And then being in this place that's so isolated, it's so isolated and you're with your family, but also your family is a stressor. Mm -hmm. And so to watch him just unravel until he gives in to the demon there's there's something about that as as a person in recovery who completely relates to that and one of my favorite lines from session nine is i live in the weak and the wounded and this movie is very good at illustrating that point of when you are isolated when you are trying to make something work and it can't and you're stressed and all of those things. Those are the moments that evil addiction, demons, whatever you want to call it. Those are those cracks, those chinks in the armor where things just slip right in and destroy everything in its path. So yeah, I totally, I I love it. I've I've watched hours of those aforementioned YouTube videos where people are trying to, like people have dissected this movie in so many ways. And it wasn't until I talked to you that it really became succinct that that's exactly what this movie is. This is, this is somebody that has struggled with alcoholism and this is their cracks, like being exposed and making the wrong choices that are forcing open those cracks and thinking that you're making the right choices to, to put yourself on a path that you're going to do the right thing, but in, in effect, making the worst decisions. You saying those things to me, like really put this movie in perspective. And I never bothered to listen to what Stephen King had to say about this movie because all I knew was that Stephen King did not like it. And of all of the adaptations of his books, this is his least favorite. Mm-hmm. And so I just was dismissive of it because I love this movie. And I was like, I, I you know, I like Stephen King. I, I, I don't read his books religiously, but him being dismissive of this film really bothered me because the performances are just so incredible and, and the scenery and the details and everything about this movie is so, I don't want to say perfect, but it's meticulous. And for him to be so dismissive of it, really was like there's a check mark and the con list of Stephen King for me because of it (laughs) Uh, so I never bothered to hear why or what what the shining was for him and when you told me that and about that interview I was like fuck that's that's what this is I don't know if I ever read the shining uh because again (laughs) I was like well I'm just gonna accept the film because if if he doesn't like it then there's something wrong with the book um (laughs) but uh he's in a relationship with somebody like you said these are stressors for him and he shouldn't be and he is making bad decisions that are he's doing what he thinks he's supposed to do but they're all bad choices and he puts himself in this position and i don't know it's just a brilliant movie for me Agreed. Sorry, Stephen King. No, I think it's great. I like the different perspectives on things. My number two is the very first Giallo film that I ever saw. I was probably eight or nine, I would say. My parents... Good age um, for a Giallo film. Yeah, my parents, my my parents uh, got a satellite dish, like a real big satellite dish. Oh, one of those! You were one of those families. Satellite dishes were so huge; they had to have a yard. Yeah, I remember it very clearly. It was my father's birthday. My mother had arranged this. We went outside. He saw the satellite dish. He freaked out. He was like, "Oh my god, this is so great!" Right? We're gonna steal all the cable now. Oh right, yeah. Well, so the funny thing about this is that my mother, my mother had gotten the satellite dish from two guys named Bo and Tony. Okay, and it was like Bo and Tony's satellite dish emporium, whatever it was. Right. Well, it became very evident over time 
that Bo and Tony were not selling satellite dishes that were legal. So the satellite dish that we had had a lot of channels on it that it wasn't supposed to have, right? So my introduction to Playboy TV, Spice Network, all of the stuff I wasn't supposed to be watching, basically. But the thing uh, for the the purpose of this story is that it had pay-per-view on it but we weren't oh, wow. paying for it. All of the new movies that would hit, which would hit this particular pay-per-view before they would hit video, I got to watch. It's where I first saw Night of the Demons, Out of the Dark, and this particular Giallo movie. And all I remember being a kid is this is a very violent movie, uh, number one. And it's the very first Dario Argento movie I ever saw. I saw Suspiria okay. way later. Um, this was the first, this was the first giallo and this was the first Argento I'd ever seen. And I remember very clearly that there was this heroine of the story who the killer would force to watch her friends die. And the way he would do that is by taping needles underneath her eyes. He had like a line of needles that would go underneath their eyes. So of course me being the sick fucking kid that I was, I took all my Barbie dolls and taped little needles under their eyes. Beautiful. And that movie, my friends, original title, Terror at the Opera, later renamed Just Plain Opera from 1987. And I recently watched it. I actually bought the Blu-ray and I watched it and I just adore it. Uh, Watching it with today's lens. And it is a it is a piece of art. I mean, yeah, I think not to not to interject on your love for this movie. It is one of those Giallo Argento films that sort of falls outside the spectrum of what people consider Argento, like a uh, perception of Argento films, and that it is very artistic, just like Suspiria. And it does capture a lot of people's affinity for that, just like, just like Suspiria. It has a cult following. People have probably seen stills from this movie and not know what it is because it there is iconic screen captures from this movie that have transcended time. It's It was actually based on Argento's experience with being a theater director of Macbeth. Mm, that's awesome. Is that he had these like really crazy experiences and there's so much cool symbolism and there's, you know, there's crows or, or ravens. I don't know. You'd have to ask my boyfriend. I cannot tell the difference between the two. <laughs> I'm not right. There's animals and then there's this insane metal soundtrack that just goes with these. Is it goblin? Death scenes. To me, honestly, I think it's actually a mix of goblin and some and another group of people. But I mean, most of his soundtracks are orchestrated by him anyway. So, yeah, but just amazing music, amazing scenery, great, great ending. You know, I, I kind of have done a deep dive recently into Argento's work. I saw deep red the other day and I, that has surpassed any expectation I may have had on that. And I I found all of these wonderful old school Jello movies from him that I really loved. I like the fact that he is not afraid to make women batshit crazy. Like, like, just like, yeah, like that's the killer, but I'd fuck him. There's something honest about that. And there's just something very interesting about that that I like. Agreed. Yeah. I have an affinity for Argento films as well. I have found myself struggling to watch. I I almost wanted to watch because I've never seen it. His uh, version of Dracula. Oh, no, don't do that. Okay. <laughs> There's a literal review online, Ron, that says, love yourself. Don't watch his version of Dracula. Okay. So there, this is your number one, my friend. Do you have a guess? I think you probably know what it is. Uh, I mean, I We've definitely talked about it. Is it the exorcist? It is. Okay. <laughs> Good guess. It's a, it's a, it's a movie. Everyone probably, when you're first delving into horror, uh, even as like, just uh, a casual fan probably a lot of people especially like our generation probably the most terrifying movie ever is the exorcist right that's right that's what everyone says this movie tapped into that in a way that terrified so many people and you'll hear about you had talked about this before you, you a lot of people hear about when they hear about the exorcist was people fleeing the theater in terror 
everyone assumes it's the scenes of Reagan masturbating with a crucifix. Oddly or, enough, no. Um, it's not. <laughs> and it's it's a, it's an absolutely horrific scene of her in a hospital. <gasps> and her pain is palpable. Mm-hmm. And much like The Shining and Psycho, this is another movie that left its actors with little path forward because this movie was so dynamic and became a cultural lexicon that these actors were forever trapped in the roles that they portrayed in this film and left little path for them outside of it. The most incredible performances that they turn in for this film and they're left trapped by it by the terror of this film and the seared images of this tortured child, this mother in absolute utter distress and these priests fighting against a, an unnatural force and they're losing. There's nothing about this movie that I can criticize at all. Everything about it from a relatively, I guess, not obscure, but not a, not a highly acclaimed director at the time, yeah, freaking no, freaking wasn't not really. No, I mean, no. Like this movie, I I have a love for French Connection, and it's his character portrayals that are I think are what define him and, and as a director. When you take that and put it into a horror movie, that's like beyond supernatural. It's not ghosts. We're dealing with the actual devil, and it's so insidious and in how carelessly the devil is introduced into the movie by the simple acts of a teenager being curious and then you find out that this is based on true events and when you watch later interviews with the priests that were involved in the exorcism of this actual child that this movie is based on and they talk about the reality versus the fictional events they're not too far disparate from one another right and that probably had that probably scared people back into their faith more than anything else that could have done. Like there were probably Catholics out there that were like, um, yeah, we're getting rid of all that shit that's in our house. And yeah, we're not talking about nothing but Jesus from this day forward until the rest of our lives. It's funny. You were talking about directors who were kind of abusive to their actors and Friedkin is one of them. He's very yeah. well known as being someone who would fire a gun by someone's head just to get a reaction out of them and would do stuff just to kind of get that performance. So it makes sense because like Exorcist is a very performance oriented film. Those performances are amazing. That is, those are all Oscar winning, you know, yes. performances. Um, Max von Sydow, amazing. amazing. You know, I always get Ellen Burstyn and Louise Fletcher like this. <laughs> yes. I know I do it all the time, all the time. But I'm like, no, no, Louise Fletcher, Nurse Ratchet. Ellen Burstyn, Exorcist. Got it. Okay. So she is, she gives such an amazing performance. It's impassioned. It's, it it's, you know, she's, she's just hanging on by a thread. You know? And you experience that with her. Like mm-hmm. it's not, it's not told to you. You're in her state of confusion. She has mm-hmm. no idea as a mother what is happening mm-hmm. in her house and to her daughter. And you experience that with her and you do, you would probably do the same things that she does as a mother like there's something medically wrong with my daughter okay right. it's not medical okay well i i, I have what, what's left right yeah. okay yeah i need Great. a psychiatrist okay right. what's left mm-hmm. the church uh we have reached that level of somehow you know religion is involved with this with this child being tortured it's so incredible i find everything about this movie terrifying agreed the way the detective is cynical about the events and it's not in an overtop way. Like it's like how like he's not buying any of the supernatural bullshit. He wants something's going on in this house. This child's mm-hmm. either being abused or something's happening, and I want to know what's going on. I want to know why this person like fell down these stairs and broke their neck and. And he seems thoroughly convinced. Exactly, like he's convinced that something something happened to Burke Dennings. That's yes, and which it's interesting. Like that's such a that's a controversial plot point in the movie. Um, there's a lot of people, a lot of people, and I'm kind of inclined to feel this way as well. But there's a lot of people who think that Burke Dennings tried to molest Reagan, and then that's how he got thrown out that window. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, granted it was the seventies. So maybe you were like, yeah, weird, strange artsy fucker comes to the door and you're like, you know, I got to run to the store. Do you want to go upstairs and, you know, sit with the 12 year old who's going through a thing. Shoes? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, that's okay. Yeah, I, there, there's a, there's a thought there. The, the book itself, I've read the book and the book is absolutely horrifying yes book makes the movie look like a disney ride it is incredibly explicit it is it goes far deeper than anything and it's just a total total horrifying book it's a wonderful book mind you it's a very well-written book it's very scary but yeah it is william peter blatty yeah excellent you know the performances in this movie are fantastic and the music, the music is fantastic Jeez. and Mer- Mercedes McCambridge as the devil is fantastic. I mean, you can't, it's excellent. It, it, it deserved every award that it won and Dick Smith's makeup is fantastic. So, Oh my goodness. And the fact that these effects were done in front of the camera, they're not, this is not CGI. This is nope. 1973. Practical effects. Practical effects. The Making makeup is amazing. Max von Sydow, who was in his late 30s, late 30s looked like, like he was in 70. his 80s. Yes. Just <laughs> what? It was a long time before I realized that he was a young man. Right? Uh, yes! I know! this I was, was like, my first time I ever saw him. And really? I was like, well, he's an old guy. He's right. probably dead now. Man. I did. I totally thought that, too. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a great number one. That and I have, to, I have to, too, give a shout out because some of our characters return. Not many. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, Damien Karras <laughs> returns for a sequel that I think is up there for horror films. And it's Absolutely. Exorcist 3. Exorcist 3, three, Exorcist is, three is so fant- good. It's no. terrifying. It's terrifying. It's great. The relationship between Father Dyer yes. and, and Kinnerman. George C. Scott, yeah. Which is George, yeah, George C. Scott and is so, it's just incredible and wonderful. And it has one of my favorite lines ever in a movie which is he's talking to father dyer and he says well what did you tell him he says jesus loves you everyone else thinks you're an asshole <laughs> and it's just the best and i wish i i wish i i put it on a bumper sticker i would yeah. wear it proudly proudly but yeah no exorcist 3 is a very underrated underappreciated yeah. horror sequel that does what i don't know what the fuck they were thinking about exorcist 2 no i don't know. either I and don't. i've seen that on a lot of top 50 lists and i'm like there's nothing there's nothing scary about that movie in my opinion there's it's, it's convoluted and it's a too confusing yeah confusing Very. i mean i remember seeing it i was like oh there's a sequel to the exorcist and i was probably uh, in my teens early teens and i was like oh my god what what is this nope uh, and i didn't even watch the exorcist 3 and i until i was probably in my 20s or whatever whenever it came out I, way later I, yeah yeah i i, I was I was very late to Exorcist 3 and I was so impressed and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, thank you. Enough that I watched the, the horrible Dominion and, and whatever, the two movies that came out within a year apart. Oh, um, yeah, because they were competing with yes. the, Yeah, yeah, I know. I haven't, I, you know what? So I actually bad. haven't seen them, so I can't yeah. say anything. There's nothing, to, there's nothing redemptive about them. Okay, so. all right. Well, that makes me feel better. <laughs> I can't say that one is better than the other. Right. I, they're so bad. All right, what's your last movie? My last movie. I have heard so many different so many differences with this movie. Like I've heard a lot of people say like, "Oh, part 2 is better." Uh they prefer part 2. They saw part 2 first. Mm. I know couples who have met because of their love of part 2. I know people who kind of kind of joined the party late too, so they they maybe have seen part 3 and thought part 3 was better. Okay. But for me, nothing compares to the original and uh, your perspective of the ride depends on when you get on the train so for me 1981's evil dead evil dead okay yeah i, love I was gonna guess friday the 13th based no, on your description no. but okay i love this movie so much i so i don't remember how old i was when i first saw it i i would say i was probably between 10 and 12 and my brother had a vhs copy and he made my father watch it first to make sure that there was nothing in it so, um, which he referred to, there was a scene of what he called rude, 
rude gore and that was the tree rape oh, so yeah. but at the at the time i don't really think i understood anything other than the tree was was being bad i didn't really understand it in terms of that but i watched this movie and i screamed and i loved it and then i rewound it and i watched it again and it's just this like beautiful 80 minute low budget phenomenal slapsticky in some parts but for the most part it is i think the reason people love part two so much is because it is a comedy yeah you know it there's a very slimes no crime kind of thing with part two where there's a lot more like slimy stuff and then in part one the gore is 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 gore it is yeah. bloody and gross and it has stop motion animation in it and decaying corpses and books and daggers and a scene where the entire screen drips red with blood and it was directed by Sam Raimi before Sam Raimi was Sam Raimi so yeah. while other people had Bruce Campbell's poster on their wall and they thought Bruce Campbell was the cutest person on the planet I was obsessed with Sam Raimi so I had pictures of Sam Raimi and interviews with Sam Raimi and articles from Fangoria all over my wall so wow <laughs> And uh, I remember I had this VHS copy of a show called The Incredibly Strange Film Show, which came from the UK. And they had broadcasted on one of the local channels and they had an interview with Sam Raimi on it. And I was just tongue on the floor, you know, <laughs> just, 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 just listening to his every single word, you know. And so, yeah, Evil Dead. Evil Dead is my is is my one of my favorite horror films of all time. I love it. It's a it's an unrelenting horror film. You know, it once is. it gets yeah. going, it's going. It is doesn't let up until the sun basically comes up and all the bodies decay and everything. And it's just scary. And I can watch it today and I can still scream because there's still moments in there that are just fantastic jump scares and just great. And I met Bruce Campbell later on and uh, read his autobiography and he's fascinating and also a very down to earth, kind, wonderful person who takes time with his fans. Like awesome. he has this line of fans and he will talk to each one of them for 10 or 20 minutes really just cool people cool dudes all like all around and i just love it i it's one of those horror films that made me a horror lover my exposure to the evil dead was very late in life and i think i saw it it was probably hbo or something i don't know and i just remember the horror i whenever i turned it on at that first that first moment it was the the camera racing through the woods and i mm. there was something terrifying about that to me mm -hmm. and i was hooked because if something can can scare me just that camera racing through the woods was up to that cabin and i was i i, I was definitely scared like that movie scared me so like mm -hmm. i associate cabins staying in a cabin in the woods with that movie forever that makes sense we did not share a, a movie on our top five. No, that's why I love it because it's so cool. Like we didn't have any, we, we didn't have any like choices. So it was, it was cool. We got to learn more about these different movies and stuff. Wee.